You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, advocates, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. So I tried to think of an April Fool's joke for today's topic, but honestly, there is really no joking about the presence of offshore oil and gas in California. It's, it's too pricey a topic to joke about. Offshore oil and gas has been a contentious issue for decades, first over the question of state versus federal ownership, but since 1969, mostly over questions of resource development versus environmental protection. Knowledge of the... Pro- probable existence of oil off the coast of California dates back to the early European explorers who noted oil slicks in the Santa Barbara Channel. About 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to visit down in Santa Barbara Channel, and I noticed the water had this very strong oil and gas smell and a sheen on the surface of the water. So it's interesting to know that it goes way back. There are naturally caused seeps in that region all the way down to Mexico. Offshore drilling began in California in 1896 when operators in the Summerland oil field in Santa Barbara County followed the field into the ocean by drilling from piers built out over the ocean. At least 187 offshore oil wells were drilled in that Summerland field by 1902. While federal versus state ownership of these submerged lands has always been contentious, U.S. Congress passed the Outer Continental Shelf Act, or Submerged Lands Act, in 1953, recognizing the state's jurisdiction out to three nautical miles. The first of 10 federal offshore lease sales in California was held in 1963. In 1969, tragedy struck and the Santa Barbara oil spill, the largest ever in California, the third after the 2010 Deepwater Horizon nationally, had a significant impact on marine life in the Santa Barbara Channel. Public outrage received prominent media coverage in the United States and resulted in numerous pieces of environmental legislation. In the next several years, including the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires a detailed environmental review and statement before any major or controversial action. In 1990, President George H.W. Bush issued an executive moratorium banning new federal leasing through the year 2000 in many offshore areas, including California. In 1998, President Bill Clinton extended the moratorium through 2012. In July 2008, President George W. Bush rescinded the executive order. In addition to the nine active drilling and production stations in state and municipal waters in the Santa Barbara region, 23 offshore drilling and production platforms remain in federal waters off of California, producing 22 million barrels of oil and 22 billion cubic feet of gas per year. And that Those statistics are as of 2009. But concerned Californians, they remain vigilant today. Californians love their coast. A vast majority, 88% of Californians, say the condition of the ocean and beaches is personally important to them, to the public policy, said the Public Policy Institute of California. They did a survey in 2003 about the Californians' view of the ocean and coast and the value of those resources to them. So today, we're going to talk with Rachel Bina. She is environmental and community activist and helped one community's fight to keep oil and gas out of their coastal waters, actually our coastal waters here in Point Reyes, that resulted in success for the short term in thwarting the sale of Lease 91, which was slated for gas and oil development between the San Francisco and Oregon border. So without further ado, Rachel, you're live on the air with us. Welcome to KWMR. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a big pleasure to be with you. That's wonderful. Thanks so much for calling and waiting here. So Rachel, I want to back up a little bit. And this is over 30 years ago. So let's back up to the 1980s. What were you doing at the time? In 1983, I bought a piece of property that 
and made it into a bed and breakfast inn, two miles south of the village of Mendocino. And my adventure in trying to protect our coast from offshore oil was about as far away from my mind as anything at that time. But something very interesting happened. After the inn was uh, remodeled and opened, which happened in 1984, I got a telephone call from a man from Louisiana who was coming to Mendocino for a hearing on exploring the Mendocino coast for possible development for offshore oil. He, of course, um, well, he was, he was, his name is Peter Supko, and he was an engineer for an, an offshore engineering company from Louisiana. So, well, he, so he didn't know who he was talking to, did he? He did not. <laughs> he asked me for a room with an ocean view, and I gave it to him. I made the reservation and then immediately started scrambling around trying to find out what was going on. Uh, and found out that there was going to be a hearing about possible exploration off Mendocino Village. And the, there was a hearing in Mendocino, and we, I went to it, and I testified against this man. And what I said is that everyone wants a room with an ocean view, but will he want to come back after his company has ruined the view? At that, issue, at that time, the major issue was drilling muds. You know, they used uh, very heavy metals, uh, cadmium and mercury and other poisons, to actually do the, the drilling. I found out a lot about it from going to the hearing and testifying against this man, and they were denied a permit, which made us all feel very successful in the, law, in the short term, but the long term I didn't realize was going to last so long. So that's the start of what happened next. So the first permit was denied. Yes. Can you back up and tell us how... Are oil and gas leases designated? Well, they're designated through the Department of the Interior Minerals Management Service. And they uh, were eventually, what happened was, they had a final hearing scheduled for February of 1988, after they had gone through a process in the meantime, I had been very concerned about this and went with, to Washington to meet with my congressman, Doug Bosco at the time, who was very disinterested in this. There was a, Donald Hodel was the Secretary of the Interior, and he was my congressman, our congressman, I should say, because well, not, not where you are, but my congressman at the time was Doug Bosco, and he thought that there should be a rig in every basin. He thought that was only fair, that every basin, that means every inlet, every, every area of every bay on the California coast should have at least one rig. Well, you know, if you give them one rig, then they'll, they'll be five or ten or twenty, or the whole coast will be taken. We were very upset about that. And at that time, I met with Barbara Boxer, whom I had never met before. Now, she is the con was the congressman for your area, mm -hmm. and she was extraordinary. She said, oh, I'm so glad you've come. I wanted to introduce a bill uh, to protect our coast. What do you think should be in it? Well, I was flabbergasted that anyone would ask me what I thought about anything. But I said, well, we need to permanently protect our coast from offshore oil development because it's very dangerous and it's very um, dangerous to the environment, dangerous to the uh, it, marine life, and also is ugly. So she went on to introduce several bills, but she was really marginalized by her colleagues at that time because no one realized how significant an issue this was, and people were worried about the price of gas, as they are now. But anyway, she was very, very involved in it and, and has continued to be our spear carrier in this, in this fight. What happened was I also met someone else who was very, very important to me, and I didn't realize it at the time. She was another congresswoman, Sally Burton. 
she was the congresswoman for San Francisco, and she took over from her husband, who had been the congressman for that area. His name was Philip Burton, mm-hmm. and he he was famous for districting issues and other things. He was a wonderful person. He died of a heart attack. She t- she ran for his seat and got it, and then unfortunately later she died of of cancer. And Nancy Pelosi. Uh, got that seat, and the, and the rest of it is history. She's she's done a wonderful job on on the same kinds of issues. But anyway, what what Salah Burton said to me was, there are so many important issues, environmental issues. But if you want to be successful, you really need to focus on this issue of offshore oil development. She herself had gone each time Congress, the the uh, subcommittee of the Interior that dealt with the moratorium for the Congressional Moratorium on Offshore Oil Development, every time they met, she was there in the front row. And she said to me, I go to these meetings, I don't ever say anything, I just sit there, and they know why I'm there, because I want to protect the coast of California. And she said, you must do the same thing. You must talk about this one issue. And as a result of that, people will know what, why you're, what, what the issue is by, just by looking at you not necessarily by listening to a speech or anything else. They will just know that if you're in the room, it's because you care about protecting the coast from offshore oil. That was absolutely the best political advice I ever got. Now, most people don't see this necessarily, or at the time they certainly didn't see it as a political issue. They saw it more as a, an environmental issue, and they thought that the decision would be based, the decision to drill for oil along the northern coast of California would be based on the merits of the issue. And I could tell right away that that was not going to be the case. These things are determined by politics. And it's very important for constituents to always let their members of Congress or their state legislators know exactly what they, they think about, about issues. But it's important not to be so scatterbrained about it. You have to stick to some issues so that you get more credibility. Um, you can't just be against everything because then you're, you're, you've diluted your impact. Yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit more as well. You, it sounds like as soon as you got engaged in this issue, you went straight to D.C., you found some mentors that helped you right. understand the process of participating and, and being present and letting people know what your concern is. How did you bring that back to the community, the Mendocino Fort Bragg community, and and get the rest of the community engaged? There well, was more I, first to it. Well, I was not the only person who went to lobby. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I met some remarkable people in that process. One of whom is now our assemblyman, after having been a state senator, and that is Wesley Chesbro, who was lobbying at the same time to, for protection of the coast. I was not the only one. And I went with two other women from my community here. So I just want to get that straight. Sure. But what happened was, eventually in 1987, we were told right before the Christmas holidays that there was going to be the final hearing on whether leases would be sold off of the California coast. It was called Lease Sale 91. And what happened was, I decided that this is something that we have to make very exciting and very important, and we need to figure out a strategy that will not be the typical strategy of just going to a hearing and talking at a hearing. We need to have some kind of a theme. We need to have some kind of a, an organization. We need to make sure that everybody is included, and we need to get people excited about this because, you know, most people do a lot of things in their lives, and they're not necessarily interested in going to a hearing. It sounds pretty boring. Mm-hmm. So I had, a, I had a group of people come to my house, which was the inn, <laughs> and we had a discussion. The people I invited were not necessarily environmentalists. They were not necessarily scientists. There was an advertising executive, an attorney who was very articulate. There were creative people from, who were painters or uh, theater people. All the people in the community whom I felt were really interesting, creative thinkers who might come up with something that we could use. So we met, and everybody talked, and it was in that time of 
that time when one had meetings and we had uh, paper all around the room and anybody could say anything and it was all written down. And at the end of the meeting, it was just chaos. <laughs> it was just total chaos. And I thought, oh, this is never going to work. And I was with a few of my friends and we went into the sitting room and and I noticed a book that one of the people who had come to the meeting, who was a supervisor for us then, his son had come to the meeting and was reading a book that he found in my library. And it was the Guinness Book of Records. And in that book, which I happened to turn to quite by accident, I just was had the book in my lap, I opened it up, and I glanced at it while everybody was talking. And what was it about? It was about Wayne Morse, a senator from Oregon, who, was, who had the second longest record of filibustering for 22 hours and 26 minutes. He filibustered the United States Senate against an oil tidelands legislation that was before them. And I thought, oh, my God, we'll have a filibuster. That's what we'll do. Because, you see, you can't tell people what they should do. Everyone wants to do what they want to do. So with the general theme of filibuster, the idea was we would talk as long as we could about this issue until they agreed that they wouldn't do it. So you basically came up with the idea to rally around one goal and creating a mass turnout to create exactly. a filibuster. Exactly. So what happened was, soon after that, Jane Kay, who was a, a, is still a wonderful science uh, writer, an environmental writer, and she worked for the Examiner at the time, and she wrote a large article in the, in the San Francisco Examiner about this lease sale. And Warner Chabot, who lives actually in Marin County, what... Wrote, designed a map of from Oregon to Sonoma which showed a grid in the over the overlay of the ocean which showed specific places where they wanted to lease and they were in front of Mendocino, Fort Bragg, Albion, Elk, Point Arena and Eureka and Arcata and when people saw this map they went ballistic because it was such a graphic interpretation of what was what was possible if we didn't save this the overturn this uh, lease sale. So what happened was somebody in the community of Mendocino volunteered to lend us an office in the middle of the town, and a lot of people came forward to organize that office to collect signatures of. Uh, not signatures, to collect the names of people who wanted to testify at this hearing. Now, the the, uh, the Minerals Management Service made a very, very big miscalculation. They rented a hall in which to have this hearing in Fort Bragg, and it was a tiny hall, <laughs> because traditionally people don't come to these meetings a few people come, there'll be 10 or 20 people at most at one of these meetings, these public meetings. So our group said, they said to me, well, we want to, we've got to get a bigger place to do this. We need to have thousands of people inside. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. We want thousands of people outside who can't get in, and we want the place to be jammed inside, and they will, they will make it possible for us to, to for it to look like there are more people here than there really are so we went along with that i want to interrupt for one second for listeners you're tuned to kwmr and this is ocean currents and i'm talking with rachel bina who's telling us the story of how uh, the communities of mendocino and fort bragg rallied against lease sale 91 which was slated to have some oil and gas development right off the mendocino coast all right so they made this m major miscalculation they they had a small hall and they had scheduled this, they told us about it, within the guidelines of the law, just to have this right after Christmas, with no time for people to plan, because most people are not involved in political activity around the Christmas season. But they were surprised, because we were able to get 1,400 people to sign up to testify. 
<laughs> to come to this hearing. We also developed flyers, brochures, and we we organized, you know, different people did different aspects of this. Please do not think for one minute that I did this by myself. I did not. There were many, 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 many people involved in this process. I would say 99 and 44, 100% pure was, was the quantity of people who were involved in this project. How did you population? How did you rally everyone? This is a time where there was no internet or cell phones. There were no in- that's correct. Um, we the I think the map started it. The map and then all the other things that we that we did. One of the things that was one uh, a woman did was she drafted a letter that could be sent to the mailing lists of every inn and hotel on the coast so that it could go out to the larger population mm-hmm. of the country because we have you know this is a tourist area we get all kinds of people who come from all over the world to right. come here and they come for one reason and that's because it's beautiful and mm-hmm. because it's the ocean is pristine and because it's dramatic and because it's spiritually uplifting so we sent these letters out each in sent letters out and and we offered people a reduced rate if they would come and testify on, on our behalf. And we also started a campaign that was called, and this is, this is something actually that happened in Sonoma County, Save the Kansas Coast, <laughs> a picture of the coast with the beautiful rocky um, islands, and what our position was, we, this coast belongs to the people of Kansas and Arkansas and everywhere else. This is not just us. We're protecting it because we live here. But you must protect it also because it's a, it's a national uh, treasure, just like the Grand Canyon or Yosemite or, or the Statue of Liberty. And that was a very powerful statement. And we had a brochure also called Save the Kansas Coast, which we sent out to everybody we could think of. But I think it's very important at this point to say that at that time we were what I like to call selectively naive. (laughs) We believed that we could do it. We believed that it would happen quickly. We believed that I said to myself, well, I'll give this six months and then it'll be done permanently. We want permanent protection. We're going to get it through legislation. We're going to get it through public sentiment. The Minerals Management Service is going to back off. It's all going to be wonderful. Well, it's, it's, I've been working on this issue for 30 years, and I can tell you that it is not done because the oil companies will continue to have power, money, attorneys, patients, and they get paid to do this, and they make a lot of money. I mean a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So we're at a disadvantage. But what we did was we organized everybody. We organized the speakers to testify. We had committees that handled various things, various aspects. We had one committee that dealt with the press. We, we called all kinds of uh, media people in television and radio, and we sent out a press release that said, this is not going to be your ordinary hearing. This is going to be spectacular. You should come because it's going to be really wonderful. We invited all the politicians that we could think of. I was involved in inviting all the presidential candidates um, to make a statement about their position. These were the Democrats, because I'm a Democrat, and I felt that Democrats would be more responsive to this issue. And, of course, I'm right about that. (laughs) Well. Um, And then we... uh, we had we set up um, special rates, as I said, to for for uh, people to come to the hearing, and we also orchestrated where they st- where the celebrities stayed. In other words, Diane Feinstein came. We had her at a particular hotel with a particular press person who was going to be very eager to interview her. In my inn, I had Peter Douglas, who was the executive director of the Coastal Commission, as well as Jane Kay, who is from the San Francisco Examiner. I told you about her, that she had 
uh, written this wonderful article. And Leo McCarthy came, and he was the lieutenant governor at the time, and also a, a member of the State Lands Commission, because as you mentioned earlier in the beginning of this program, there are state waters and there are federal waters. The state has jurisdiction from the mean high tide to three miles, and then the federal jurisdiction starts at three miles and goes to 200 miles. So it was very important that our state officials, as well as our members of Congress, came to this hearing. And people did come, and there, is, there are pictures, newspaper clippings, I'm looking at one right now, <laughs> that show 5,000 people in front of this tiny hall with big sign, holding signs, and, and there was a big banner on top of the hall that said, uh, Ocean Sanctuary Now. And there's a picture of Dianne Feinstein testifying before the, the committee that was um, hearing the, the, uh, the case. And we had such a great press room. You know, as you said, there was no, there was really no, there were no computers for ordinary people, but some press people did have computers, and some press people just used telephones. So we had this, this bank of telephones and banks of, of plugs so that they could plug in their computers. It was, <laughs> it was really quite wonderful and lots of food for them to eat. Well, we had 13 cameras in the hearing room. They came from ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, CNN was there, all over the country. It was national, uh, national uh, television channels as well as uh, local affiliates. So there were affiliates from Los Angeles and from San Francisco, and there were 13 of these television cameras in the room. And we had people, we had press from all over the world. There were, um, I was interviewed by uh, a German newspaper and also a French newspaper, as well as NPR and all the rest of them. It was quite amazing. That's amazing. The word got out so wide over this small place of the world. For folks tuning in, you're listening to KWMR 90.5 Point Ray Station and 89.9 Bellinas. You're listening to Ocean Currents. And Rachel, I want to... I want you to continue. I want to hear the the end of the story for the hearing and the success of that. We have about 15 minutes to cover some of this territory. So tell us about the hearing. And you had 1,400 people te- uh, registered to testify. And how was this received by the, um, the Min- Minerals Management Service? Well, they were absolutely astonished. They were actually frightened. <laughs> it, was so, it was so bizarre to them, they couldn't even imagine it. And they were totally unprepared for it. We had individuals... We had people who had a scientific background within the community who had gone through the, uh, the draft environmental impact statement, which was, I believe, about five or six inches thick, <laughs> and had picked out specific criticisms of the analysis of the potential oil leases. We had fishermen. We had school children who gave pictures and sang songs. We had the Presbyterian Women's Choir sing a song to them. <laughs> we had Native American tribal dancers. We had people in costume. We had a doctor who talked about his patients and how they, and, and the, the quality of life here and how important it was and how we did everything in relation to the ocean. We married in front of the ocean to be near it, and we even scattered our ashes at, at, when people we loved died into the ocean. So it, it was very profound, and it was very entertaining, and it was bizarre. And it went on, I think at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning of the first day, they said, well, we, we, we have to sleep, so we're gonna, we'll, call, we'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> and eventually, we, our filibuster lasted for 24 hours which beat Wayne Morris, Morris of the Senate. So a new Guinness Book of World Records. It was, it, was a world, it was certainly a world record. I don't know that it's ever been acknowledged as a world record, but people talk about that hearing uh, with great astonishment because it really was incredible. Now, when 
when it was time for these people to leave, they had to leave. They were they were frightened. They thought it was going to be a, a, a something terrible if they left because not only a few hundred people got to speak. And I think it was Richard Charter who had a T-shirt made, or someone did anyway, for each one of the hearing officers, and he gave them, or I I think, I'm not sure how they got them, but they were given these T-shirts, and they said, I survived the Mendocino hearings, (laughs) and uh, I... The people were very upset that they weren't able to speak, and it was my job to calm everyone down, and I was terrified because I really thought something bad was going to happen. But somehow it all worked out, and the the hearing officers left, and we had a, a, a video camera that had each person who was not able to speak register on this video saying, I wanted to speak, but I wasn't allowed to. Well, that's because good. Because they had promised that they would let everybody speak. So some people were frustrated by that. Most people were. But, but everyone felt very successful about it because it really worked very well. Now, the aftermath of this is some of the political consequences that came out of this are that our congressman was, uh, was defeated. And and it was over this issue. It was a third-party candidate, and people voted for that third-party candidate and not for him mm-hmm. because he had refused to... He said he didn't want to grandstand over it. Well, that was the end of his political career. Uh, what happened was it became obvious to me that we needed to have a, a protection in state waters, if we were going to ever get protection in federal waters, we had to make sure that the state waters were protected, too. And the, my assemblyman um, and state senator at the time, Dan Hauser from Eureka, and Barry Keene um, from Benicia, I think, introduced legislation to protect the coast in state waters permanently from offshore oil and it was very very difficult it took i testified 11 times in sacramento on this bill and couldn't get it out of the committee for years finally it went out of the committee and it was passed but at the very very end of this hearing before the final committee in sacramento some they made some kind of a deal with the oil companies And the deal was this. It's kind of a poison pill. That means that it destroys the whole thing, if you look at it carefully. Mm -hmm. And that is that should there be oil found in federal waters, then the state and the governor declare a national emergency or a statewide emergency because of energy. He would then have the power to lease um, acreage in the um, in the um, in state waters. So he so that passed and it became law. And it's very unfortunate because it's, we don't have permanent protection in state waters. We have temporary protection. Mm-hmm. Another thing that happened was a man named Dan Hayfley, who I believe is from Santa Cruz. Yeah, he's still down there. Is he? Yes. He got the idea. Let's forbid through ordinances in local governments all along the coast from Los Angeles up to to Oregon let's get those governments to pass ordinances which which do not allow onshore support systems for offshore oil well what a brilliant idea if you can't get onshore with your pipeline if you can't get uh, an airport to go back and forth to the rigs, if you can't have a refinery, if you can't have anything that is, could be construed as a support system for offshore oil development, then you can't do it. 
or it certainly slows you down. Let's put it that way. And how did those did those ordinances get passed? Yes, not. Uh, I I think they were passed everywhere that they were tried. The, the, what they say, I think, if I'm correct, that the, you can't develop an onshore support system without the support of the people, without the people voting to allow it. Mm -hmm. Because the people in these coastal communities are so adamantly opposed to offshore oil development that that would be an easy thing Mm -hmm. to get, I think. Well, that's actually a real positive. In the end, this whole effort really stimulated so much more activism in terms of coastal communities and governments working together. It also stopped the federal government from... Um, from going along, going ahead with this lease sale, and it was taken off the the bat, you know, off the the, the um, agenda by Donald Hodel, who just withdrew it, and George Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, started this moratorium, and then Clinton did, because they realized it was a toxic issue politically, that nobody could run for office in this state without caring about the ocean. The ocean is too important to us all to ignore. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has carried on to a certain extent. But every time the price of oil and gas is manipulated, and I do believe it is manipulated by the oil companies for political purposes, not to mention making money, people get frightened and they will say, drill, baby, drill. You mentioned to me a book that is very enlightening about that exact power you're talking about. What's the name of that book? The book is called Oil in Troubled Waters. It's by William Freudenberg and Robert Gamling. Uh, Freudenberg is, uh, was at the time with the University of, of Wisconsin in Madison, and he was a professor of, of rural, rural sociology. And Gamling is a professor of sociology and director of the Center for Socioeconomic Research at the University of Southwestern Louisiana. Now, both of these men um, worked either for the for the advisory committee of the Department of the Interior or the National Academy of Sciences. And the book is about what makes people's reaction to offshore oil development different in California than it is in, say, Louisiana where they have just about destroyed everything in sight. And on the cover of this book, there's a picture of what the coastline looks like in Louisiana. It's been completely degraded with channels and oil development paraphernalia and equipment that really destroyed it. But the, the real reason that there's a difference in attitude about the Gulf and about here, is that we live along this coast. It's like that that um, that doctor said, Dr. Hahn, Don Hahn. He said, everything we do is in proximity to the coast. We drive up and down it. All the roads go north and south in California, the most of them along the coast. And there are, then there are a few that go east-west, but most of them go north-south. And we see it all the time. We experience it all the time, and it's a place where we come for recreation, even if we don't live on the coast. So we feel passionate about it. It's part of our identity as a as a people. Um, the coast is, is it's important to everyone. The ocean is important to everyone, it, it, and it's passionately important to everyone. Well said, well said. Um, Rachel, one of the things you mentioned was that you have gone from being an active warrior on this issue, which is so clear in, in how you talked about this whole time period, to an active worrier. Yes. And, you know, that's something that I really picked up on as an educator in terms of carrying on the legacy of how stories like this get passed on. Can you talk a little bit about how you're, how you're passing this on, passing the torch? Well, two things. First of all, I'm a mentor in a program called the Partnership Scholars, uh, and it's a, it's a program for involving myself with, with young people in high school, junior high and high school. Um, and I try to tell, teach them about the importance of all of this. 
But I also came to realize a few years ago that I'm getting old. I'm 70 years old, and I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm not going to be able to do this for the rest of my life. Um, so it's important for me to pass the torch. And what I did was I started a little group of people here in the community who are vested in this community, people who either are professionals here or own land or farm or who are um, educators, teachers, everyone, or who are raising a family. And these are the, the young uh, heirs of those people who were so involved with me, people who, who were involved in this project of protecting the coast in, in 1988, have had children, and those children, and some of the children were actually involved in the um, the hearing itself. Some of them were part of the school children that came to the hearing and were and felt empowered by it. And I invited them to come to my house, and I invited them to 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 talk about it and to pass the torch. And they were very interested in, and enthusiastic about it. But it it all dissipated because the truth is, there's no overt threat at the moment. And if there was, they'd come right up to the to the mic and talk, but it's very hard for, for people who are involved in other things to throw themselves into, into this fight, and it is a fight. It's going to be a fight forever. Right. Well, and it's that whole point of activism and activating a community and using your voice and, and getting knowledge to act on an issue. And well, I, th- I think it's very important for people to, number one, focus on something that they think is important. I'll pass on what Sala Burton said to me. Don't don't uh, just be against everything. Figure out something that's really important to you that, that you have passion for. And I hope it's the ocean, and I hope it's about protecting it from the various things that can happen. And, and pursue it, and think about it, and write letters about it, and meet your elected officials about it. Now, there is a new woman, a new person who was just appointed by the president to be the new secretary of the interior, Sally Jewell, whom he thinks will be a good steward of the environment. But she also has a background in, in um, the oil industry. So I think she needs to hear from people. I think people should write to, the sec- to this woman when she is finally confirmed, which she will be. Mm-hmm. Um, Sally Jewell the new Secretary of the Interior. Write to her. Tell her what you think. Assemblyman West Chesbro is very, very involved in ocean protection issues, and he's the, um, he's the chair of the Resources Committee in the Assembly. He's our, he's our Assemblyman. Let him know how you feel. State Senator Noreen Evans is also very involved in issues like this and needs to be contacted. Call your representatives. Develop a relationship with them. Do not attack them, please. Mm, keep do point. not attack them. Do, it, they may do something that you don't like. Tell them about it privately. Don't attack them. It's very important to have a cordial relationship with people who are in power, and it's possible to get them to do things that they didn't think they would do based on your persuasive abilities. But don't attack them. Try to relate to them. We've got to get along in order to protect this coast. Speaking of protecting the coast, there is a process in place right now to expand the Gulf of the Farallones and Cordell Bank sanctuaries. What are your thoughts about it or, or any concerns? I think it is a magnificent idea. I'm so excited about it. And I, my only concern is that it doesn't go far enough. I'd like to see it go all the way up the coast. But expansion of any kind of an area like this is so important because it, it allows us to, to protect the coast from the kinds of environmental damage that everyone is so hell-bent to, to perpetrate. It, it will stop. If this, is, if this comes to be, it will stop uh, the oil companies from having anything to do with that particular area. And because the coastal currents, the ocean currents, <laughs> pardon the pun, go from north to south, it means that if 
the northern part of our coast is developed, any oil spills will go right into that sanctuary, which would be a disaster. So it, it gives us another layer of protection for areas even north of where it's proposed to be. The other process that's happening is that there is a, a big um, push to, to get the president to declare the coastal monuments to extend also on land in particular places. And that will be a, a very wonderful thing. So you want, might want to write to the president and ask him to um, declare the area in southern... The Stornetta lands, the are you Stornetta talking? Stornetta lands in, in southern Mendocino County mm-hmm. to be protected as well. Everything we can get, even if it's only by inches, is better. Absolutely. Well, you live on a treasured coastline, and as you mentioned earlier, I mean, you really pointed out how it is... A national treasure. People come from all around the world to visit this incredibly beautiful place. So it's because of people like you engaging with so many people on deep, deep levels that it continues to be so beautiful. So I want to just thank you for your complete passion and sharing it with so many people. I'm delighted. uh, Thank you very much for your kind words. Everyone will have an opportunity to be involved in this, believe me. Well, I wanted to mention also, you are, it's, you also put your energy into expressing your ideas about this issue through art. Can you talk, and you have an art exhibit coming up, um, gallery coming up. At the Partners Gallery in Fort Bragg, I'll be having a a show. I I specialize in collages, and there, I did a, my last show was called uh, Crude Cover-Up, and it was about the terrible destructive explosion in the um, in the Gulf of Mexico. I was so upset by it and the consequences of it and all this oil just vomiting into the into the ocean uh, into the Gulf there that I I just I couldn't even watch the images of the of the sea life being smothered in oil but what I did do was develop very very large uh, series of collage paintings with the theme crude cover-up, and they're about the, the sadness and, and futility and devastation of, of, of the oil spill and the culpability of British Petroleum and the, the Minerals Management Service and for allowing the oil companies to do whatever they want and what, what the consequences are. You know 11 people were killed in that explosion, right. and the damage to the environment is, is just, it continues even now. So the oil companies made billions of dollars, but they fa- they failed to plan for contingencies or pay for the the technological devices that could have uh, been in place that would have prevented these accidents from happening. So the the pieces I wrote, I made many many pieces about that, all called crude cover up. It was a series. One of them was called whitewash. One of them was called Houston, We Have a Problem, about <laughs> British Petroleum in particular, and also Dispersed. I did a series of, of paintings about the concept of dispersion. It's, I'm fascinated by the perception that if something is hidden or it's obscured from view, that the consequences of it will disappear. Mm-hmm. So they put these chemicals on, <clears throat> which can cause more damage than the actual oil, and they... And then the oil particles become smaller and smaller, and then they fall into the ocean, and they're, and they're, but they're still there. And they, they, the destruction that, that the chemicals and the oil and the hiding and the, and the obfuscation just goes on and on and on. So my main concern was about those issues. And then I did two pieces called, uh, that were about red tags. You know, when somebody does a, has a building violation, they put a red tag on the property. Mm-hmm. So one of mine is called Red Tagged Oil Rig, and the other one, which has hundreds of red tags on it, is just called Violations, because I feel like what they've done is they've violated us. And where is this going to be, and when does it start? Well, this show is going to be for the month of May, and it's going to be in Fort Bragg at the Partners Gallery. Great. Well, it's wonderful that you're able to 
communicate in another way to another audience about the issues that you work on. Is there a specific organization or website that you recommend people that want to learn more about this issue go to? You mentioned contacting well, vote, um, elected officials, but are there specific organizations? Well, I think that the, the, the major organizations in the country, the Sierra Club, is very involved in these kinds of issues. Um, so is Greenpeace. So, it, you know, all of the, all of the major organizations... Um, I think that I think that people just need to do a little research on this and just put into your computer offshore oil anti offshore oil organizations and you'll get you'll get a list of things that'll make your head spin. Yes, indeed. Well, I need to wrap things up right now. I have some other announcements to make, but Rachel, I want to thank you again for coming on the show today and working so hard on this issue. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Jennifer, for all that you do. Thank you. Have a great week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We have been talking with Rachel Bina, who is a activist and was very involved in um, organizing the communities of Mendocino and Fort Bragg area during lease sale 91 in the 80s and successfully fought off that opportunity. And I love the example of that these are real people just like you and I getting involved and activated that worked hard and were able to influence an outcome. And as she mentioned, it's not permanent. And so there's still vigilance that needs to happen. And she encouraged and we encourage you to stay up to date on these issues by staying in touch with your elected officials of what you're interested in, as well as organizations that are tracking these issues like the Sierra Club and the NRDC as well. Very interesting story, and I'm thankful for people like that, that we have the coastline that we have up and down here. And I'd like to just say thank you for tuning in. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month. This is part of the West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1, you can tune into KWMR to learn about a topic of environmental focus. And Ocean Currents, I have a podcast on iTunes, and you can also go to the Cordell Bank Sanctuary website, Cordell, C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V to get past episodes. Thanks for tuning in today to KWMR and to Ocean Currents. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cornell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cornell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.